You're listening to Jeopardites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. My guest in this episode is Vanessa Sesson. Vanessa is a professor of religious studies in the liberal and creative arts and humanities department at Marianopolis College in Quebec. She's also a research fellow for the International Institute for Studies in Race, Reconciliation and Social Justice at the University of the Free State in South Africa, as well as an adjunct professor at the Faculty of Religious Studies of McGill University in Montreal. As a scholar, her focus is on Buddhist studies with particular emphasis on hagiography, gender, and childhoods. Vanessa's first novel, which came out earlier this year, is called Yashodhara, a novel about the Buddha's wife. I got on a Skype call with Vanessa to talk about why she wanted to tell this person's story, what it was like to write in the voice of Yashodhara, and how the process of writing this book changed how she felt about the Buddha. Vanessa will be speaking at Jail of Toronto on September 28th. Here is my conversation with Vanessa. Given that you've spent this 20-year career in academia talking about teaching religion and talking about uh, all the aspects of Buddhism and everything. Was this an interest that developed early on for you in, like, in your teenage years, or did you want to be some, become someone completely different when you were 15, 16? So I'm actually a scholar of comparative religion, um, but my focus has been Buddhism for most of the 20 years. I, when I was 15, 16, I never even imagined my future, to be perfectly honest. I had no plans of, I didn't know that I wanted a family or didn't want a family, never planned on becoming a teacher or a scholar. Like, I feel like I just kind of walk forward and my life unfolds as I'm walking. So it never, it's very rarely planned, but somehow when things arise, they work if I work hard enough at it. So I didn't have any plans to do this. Um, I was very happy as a scholar. I'm still a scholar of religious studies. I love the academic life. It's an amazing life. It's a privileged life to learn and build on learning and to share that with students and to think it through in your writing is a really extraordinary experience. Um, so this isn't so much a departure as it is a new way of engaging with my scholarship. Um, and I never planned on writing fiction. Like it's just kind of the door opened and I walked forward. <laughs> it's a little bit more like what happens that tends to be how my life works. So. Um, at one point in my scholarship, I had to ask myself the question, is there another way to do this? You know, is there another, there's a formula to academic writing and you get used to it and then you get quite good at it if you practice it enough. And, you know, you put in your research, you ask a certain question, you phrase your sentences in a very particular way um, and you back up your research. And so there's just, just kind of formula to being an academic that is precise and I appreciate it. But there's also something stilting about it if you do it too long. And so there was this question of, is there another way to take all of this learning and engage it? And just literally one morning I woke up and I thought, well, what if I wrote it as a novel instead of writing it in that particular formula? And then I just, I just did. What was it particularly about her in the research beforehand? What was it about this woman that made you feel like, someone has to tell this story and that person's going to be me. 
I don't think I phrased it quite that way in my head because that would have been quite <laughs> presumptuous. Right. It wasn't that I need to do this and no one else can. Yeah. But um, I just so there's a couple things. Um, I'm very interested in women and gender in the tradition. And until recently, I don't think women have been highlighted to the way that they are today. So I think there's something about revisiting stories and looking at the women and hearing their voices. And I'm not the only one doing this. This is happening all across the board. So she just seemed like a really obvious person whose story I thought needed to be considered again. Um, and she's there. She's there all over the literature. She's there in all of his lifetimes. She's consistently present. But somehow we just don't seem to really pay attention to her. Like the most common thing that people said to me when they heard about my project or they asked me what I was working on was I didn't know the Buddha had a wife, which is really quite heartbreaking because he had this wife for thousands of lifetimes and in her spinal, and he devastated her. How is she forgotten in this way? So she just seemed like, it seemed like a story that really needed to be thought about again. And I just wanted to think about it. It wasn't so much I need to be the one telling her story, but more I just want to take some time and think about her and we'll see where it goes. You, in the, in the introduction to the book, you, you specifically mentioned that this isn't, this isn't historical fiction, but this is a word that I had never heard before, but I'll, I'll try to pronounce it right. You said that this is uh, hagiographical fiction. <laughs> Okay, so hagiography is a sacred telling of a story. So we have a historical telling where we're trying to get to the facts of what may have literally and materially happened. But religions are full of hagiographies, which are imagined stories, magical stories, sacred stories in which a character is idealized. So when you tell the Buddha's life and you look at the early text, those are hagiographies. They're not necessarily historically true. They are telling the imaginings and the devotions of a tradition about their idealized character. So when I said it's not historical fiction, it's because we don't know that any of this happened. We don't know what's true and what's not. We have so many texts in Buddhism, right? And they all compete and conflict. And there's just this huge reservoir of material where the tradition just kept keeps telling its stories in new ways. And these are hagiographies. And so what I've done has been inspired not by the history, but by the hagiographies, that that's what helped me tell this story. So it's magical and it's romantic and it's, you know, extreme in terms of the palace life being so closed off. I mean, a lot of these things probably historically didn't happen. But um, so it's just engaging with the sacred narratives. But if I take the sacred narratives, what do I see when I look for her? That was really the question. Where is she in these stories? And she's there. Let's now talk a little bit about the the actual structure of the book itself. Why did you choose to use the first person narrative? And how did you outline the story in terms of these are the these are the aspects that I want to hit because the book is told right. from her point of view at specific chapters in her life. So what was the decision making behind that? Well, the decisions, you know, as a writer, you probably have experienced this also. The decisions are kind of organic most of the time, whereas you try on different things, you change and you shift and you discover the process as you're in the process. I'm sure there's some writers who are very methodical about it and have a, a structure ahead of time, but I tend to be a bit more messy about it. So I just have to kind of go into the water and see what it feels like. And certainly it felt like, she, I just felt like I wanted to become her. I want, if I was really going to know 
this story from a different perspective. If I was really going to leave the academic world behind, then I wanted to go all the way. So in the academic experience of writing, you're trained to stand outside of an experience and to watch from the outside. So if I stand outside a particular text and I look into it, what do I see? And I try as best as I can to be objective, knowing that I'm never going to be fully objective, but trying to be objective and standing outside. What I wanted to do here was completely switch my experience with the story. And so what happens if I dive inside the story? And to dive inside the story, I have to become it. And it seems the most natural thing for me to become her. So I took on her voice and I lived a story that I have been studying for over 20 years in a totally different way. And so that's also why I feel like this is a building on my academic experience, because I was still in the process of learning it. It wasn't I'm abandoning my academic training for something new. It was my academic training has taught me to ask questions. And so now I want to ask a whole new series of questions. What does it feel like to be inside the story instead of standing outside it? What will I learn? And I learned so much about her story that I never, I don't think I would have realized if I had continued standing outside it. So that was what I was hoping for is to learn it new. And what I saw when I became her is how sad the story was, which I think when you stand outside it, you're focused on the Buddha. He's the hero. He's Mr. Magnificent who learns something and walks away and has this amazing journey where he goes off and achieves this great awakening. So great for him. And, and he does this for the whole world. So he's wonderful. But what was it like to be his wife? What was it like for everyone who loved him, who hoped he would stay? You know, this experience of his renunciation is wonderful for him, but it's devastating for everyone else. And when you start looking at the stories, you realize the authors knew that. The authors of all of this literature, they expressed the king's pain and Gotami's pain and her pain as Yashoda. Like everyone is devastated that he left. And so there's this huge heartbreaker, like a whole pile of broken hearts left behind for him to pursue his journey. And I don't think I ever appreciated that until I like I tried to be her. And I thought, oh, my God, my husband is leaving me and leaving me the day I give birth to my only son so that she wakes up in the morning and discovers he's gone with her newborn in her arms. I mean, what a crazy experience for a human being to have to live through. And he celebrated and she's forgotten. I don't think I ever appreciated the the sat the emotional depth of this story until I started engaging with her and not just appreciating how amazing his insights are. It's a very different experience. I think, yeah, and, and that way that was perfectly uh, encapsulated because the first the prologue is the moment that she is has to say goodbye to her son. And not only does she have to give that goodbye and be strong for him, she has to come to terms with that my husband is doing this to me. Right. I am now a it's part awful. of doing this to my son because mm -hmm. he doesn't know why he his mother is not going to be there for him because of this enlightenment journey that he has to go through. Right. When you were, like you said, you had to become her to, to tell the story. How do you think in the process of doing the actual writing when you had to type in her voice, how did the person that you are, how did Vanessa get affected 
over that period? And what was, I guess, the the pre-writing and the post-writing differences in you as a person? It was it was very intense. It was the most intense experience I've ever had writing. I think because so much of academic writing is about pulling yourself away. I've learned to stay separate. To the, I mean, you never really are. You know, I'm always looking at things from my own perspective, but I I have an experience of being as separate as possible. And here I wasn't separate at all. And so the merging between me and her, even though she's a product of my own imagination, was really profound and very intertwined. And so I don't know how much of her is me and me is her, but I was deeply affected by her. And I, I mean, I had periods of time when I was writing where I would go to sleep and her voice was still talking and I would imagine, you know, the characters were all swimming in my head. I couldn't shake any of the characters. They were so alive that I, I was just deeply embedded in all of it. The part that was really hard for me, um, was that I became really angry with the Buddha for a long time. As I was writing it, the more I experienced how difficult it was for her, as I was understanding it, and based on all of this literature, the more I just couldn't believe what a horrible husband he was. And I I knew that I had to make my peace with him if I was going to finish the book properly. So I had my own emotional journey with him where I was quite upset with him for a long time and writing about him coming back and saying, now I have to take my son with me. Yeah. That was the hardest part of the book to write because I was so mad at him. I couldn't figure out how to make him seem reasonable because he wasn't reasonable. He left her and then he comes back and takes her son. And so I had to write that chapter about 20 times until I could finally get to a point where I understood him. Because I knew I needed to understand him. But right. that was the biggest challenge. It wasn't becoming her. It was becoming at peace with him. Mm-hmm. It was very difficult. It was a, it was a, never had an experience like this before. Yeah. And it seems like, um, I mean, again, just as a writer to writer thing, sometimes you definitely hit this moment. Like whenever I choose to tell a story where I don't like an aspect of a character, because like, you, you want to write, yeah. you want to be happy. But sometimes you put yourself in this place where you realize that, wait, I'm making myself angry and sad by choice because of this right. aspect of the character that I have to tell right now. And we, it feels really weird in that moment where you have to remind yourself that, no, no, this was my plan. I wanted to do this. <laughs> and now I have to right. see it it's through. So I have to do the character justice. You have to tell the story right. in the right way so that people don't think that you are tarnishing uh, a you know god's image but you're telling the story from this perspective that people hadn't really considered before so how did you balance that aspect of telling tell being in his voice when he is the one uh when she's interacting with him telling his story while also making sure it fits the narrative that you've established like how did you figure out that balance creatively I just, I had to keep working at it. I didn't, I I hope I figured it out by the end, but I think, um, I think I have because people who've read it seem to feel they, I I haven't come across anyone who closes the book and feels that I've done something terribly unjust to the Buddha. Um, I haven't had that response. So people seem very emotionally tied to all the characters by the end. So I think I did okay. Um, But I think it's because I needed 
to, I needed to get to the point where I was okay and I had done the journey and then I knew I could carry her through the journey. So it was more of that. So it became a really personal experience of me making my peace with a piece of a story that I didn't realize had been upsetting me for so long. And it was lovely to take it to heart instead of trying to send back from it. Given that you chose the direction of writing it as a novel, it gives you a lot of creative freedom, uh, which is which is helpful because if there isn't a, a preceding story about this person, you can add aspects that would be fitting in telling the story in today's times. I'm yeah. curious to know how you figured out the character of Yashodara's mother, because in, in, in the first half that I've read so far, she is, is, is a really good mentor, not just to her, but just to me. She's saying these things that you hope that you hope that she had that mother. And that's just the right. kind of feeling I got. So what was your inspiration of her voice and how did you figure that out? Was there a person that you were thinking of when you were creating her? It's so, it's so interesting because um, I keep getting asked the question about her mom. Mm -hmm. So it's, her mother seems to be a character that um, people want to think about. Um, so it's important to explain that the research behind this book is really extensive. And so... Uh, there's 30 pages of notes at the end of the book where I explain in every chapter which sources I use and how I use them and where each scene in the book comes from so that because it's so loaded and people have so many attachments to all of these characters, I didn't want to just write a book and let people guess, you know, did I make it up? Did I not make it up? I wanted people to be able to engage with the literature also. So there's a bibliography and there's notes so that people can figure out where all of these stories come from. And most of the book is entrenched in the classical literature. But there are, as you said, areas where the classical literature didn't address. Right. And so in those moments, I either would not address them and leave a gap, or I have to make them up. And so in some areas, I had to make up parts of the stories to make sure that it continues. Because the classical literature was focused on the Buddha, so there's a whole bunch of elements that are not there mm -hmm. for her especially her parents. So the Buddha's parents are very established characters in the tradition. Hers are not. Her birth story is not. Like her origin story is really far from the classical tradition's imagination. So I had to really make that up. Um, I did find names in the early sources, a genealogy that tells us potential names for her parents, but they're different names. So I had right. to choose a name. But the parents, the reason I built the parents the way I did is that I came to the conclusion that if she's a formidable person and she had to have been a formidable person, Yashodra, because she was the Buddha's wife. And so she couldn't have been nobody. Right. Then she must have had a formidable mother because that's how it works. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, I mean, sometimes it doesn't, I no, grant I it, yeah. <laughs> but I just thought an amazing character like her deserved an amazing mother. Right. That, and, and so I just needed her to have someone really strong to look up to to help her build her own strength. The uh, there's one particular chapter that uh, I wanted to discuss because of it pulls from another mythological tale, which is the Ramayana, the chapter about uh, Shurpanaka. Can you talk about who she was in, in the Ramayana mythology and how you chose to tell that story in context to Yashodara's experience of seeing her on stage. So if you could talk a little bit about that process of that chapter. Um, so a lot of the stuff that I needed to do with this book, uh, the, a lot of the imaginings had to happen with the early parts of their lives. 
uh, as her Yashoda is really strong in the literature once she's married to the Buddha. So from that point on, the sources tell us a lot about her. And so I had to fill in a lot of those blanks, as I was saying before. Um, and I wanted to create a world, a world of happiness, a world of enthusiasm, because it's what breaks afterwards. And so I want to build up that enthusiasm that then is going to be torn apart. And so I had to imagine a lot of scenes of what it would have been like 2,500 years ago when the two of them would have been high caste or royal characters living a privileged life and getting to know each other. And so what did they do in those days? And I imagine they must have watched plays and enjoyed performances because there's so many performing arts in the Indian tradition. And that must have been part of their experience. So I took what I know of the ancient Indian tradition that is still being practiced in contemporary experiences and just wanted to place them in a world and give them experiences together. The Ramayana I have threaded throughout the novel because I think there's such an important parallel between the Ramayana story and the Buddha story and the notion of abandonment of a wife. So I decided that if they're going to have a play that they're going to watch, it would have to be a piece of the Ramayana, but they can't watch the whole Ramayana because that would take a year. So I decided that they were going to have a really long and slow experience as is still practiced sometimes in Southern India. And they're just going to see a section of the Ramayana. And the piece of the Ramayana that has always broken my heart is Shurupanikas, that she is, I mean, she's a horrible demoness and she's Ravana's you know, sister. And so she's the bad guy. But and she's normally, especially in the North, told as a bad guy, as a, you know, terrible character who deserves her punishment. But in the Southern tradition, she's really tragic and it's forgotten again. And so it just seemed like a really good parallel of a character who, in her case, she's demonized. Yashoda is never demonized, but she's um, missed in the South. She We don't notice her. And then in the South, they it's tragic. She loves Ram and she loves Lakshmana and she wants desperately for one of them to love her back. And it's so sad. I didn't know it wasn't conscious when I was doing it. It became clear to me after I wrote it. I just knew I wanted her scene in, but it just seemed like here's a female character who is, who, whose heart is not being respected, who's not being seen. And in the Ramayana, she's brutalized and it's very sad. And for Yashodra, she's not brutalized, but she is ignored in for most of the tradition. And she's ignored by the Buddha. And so there was something that I felt like if anyone could connect to her, it would be Yashodra, who could see a woman who's not being seen properly. So it just seemed now, I mean, the more obvious one would be to connect her to Sita. But I feel like I wanted somehow she was going to see someone that we, we really don't see. And that's that's Shurpanaka. When people make a person bigger than life, when they assign him to be the savior and he needs to be the the god for people, they do really do want to sanitize that person over years and years so that no one can sure. really point a finger at that person. And doing that with the Buddha is sounds just something that I'm sure that felt challenging that you have to figure that out. And, I, and I'm, that's why I was really just really glad that you included that aspect of the story to create the parallel with another story that yeah. what I'm doing, I mean, it felt like what you were saying, like what I'm doing here is something that you might notice in other stories that have been, yeah. that we've been told for 2000 years. We need to look at them again. 
Yeah, there's a there's a rabbinic. So my training is in comparative rabbinic and Buddhist materials, and there's a rabbinic um, passage that really inspired me um, that I think about all the time. I always tell my students about it. It's this saying in the Talmud when they talk about the Bible or the Torah, the early part of the Bible. The rabbis say, turn it and turn it and turn it again because everything is in it. And I think about that all the time, that this is what we're supposed to, this is the academic call, is that if for really questioning minds, we have to take the stories that we have and turn them over and over and over again. And each time you turn it, you'll see something else. We can't just stay with one version because then we've stopped engaging with our stories. And so I thought if I turn the Ramayana or if I turn the Buddha's narrative and I turn it around, what will I see this time? And so this time I turned it and I saw her. If I turn it again, who will I notice this time or what part of it will I see? And we have to do that. There's not one way of reading any of these texts. There's such a danger to limiting ourselves to one reading. We must keep re, and this is how the traditions stay alive. If we stop asking these questions and reading them differently, if we say we're not allowed, we destroy our traditions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important. So I was very aware that this is what I was doing. I was turning the Buddhist story around and reading it again. And I knew some people would say, you can't. That's not how we read it. (laughs) And and there's been a couple of people who've been very outspoken in their blogs saying, this is not the story (laughs) that my grandmother told me you have no right to write it this way. But I think... That is a mistake because I think you have now decided there's only one way of reading these traditions. And the moment you do that, you take the breath and the life out of these traditions. That's the best way for them to end. You are coming to JLF Toronto and you act, you also happen to have the first session on uh, this yes. coming Saturday. Fittingly with uh, uh, two authors, uh, one of them being Chitra Banerjee Devakaruni who has written a book talking about Sita in, in the Ramayana mm-hmm. and also previously wrote about Draupadi from the Mahabharata. What do you think uh, it is about this time now that these these stories are coming out of important women in history and this interest right now? Um, I think it's really exciting. I'm so excited about Diva Karuni's work. Um, I was just, I just started reading her book and I emailed her right away going, this is wonderful, I'm so excited. <laughs> So I'm really excited to be part of this conversation that's happening. I didn't do it with that in mind. I didn't do it because it was a trend. I just did it because I wanted to do it. But I probably wanted to do it because I felt that there was an opening and a a permission that maybe wasn't felt before. I think um, feminist scholarship really needed to push us to this point. We, We needed to fight for a voice and fight to recognize that women need to be seen in the literature. And so we were looking for very specific things. Um, we were identifying hurts and identifying lapses that we needed to identify, but maybe we're at a new stage now where we still have to keep looking and fighting for all of those places, but maybe we also have a space now to be playful where we can say, we're just allowed to do this. We don't have to fight for our place anymore. Now we can just be in our place. And as women or as people looking for women, we finally get to be playful and imagine and enjoy And it's a pleasure to be able to do that. I didn't feel like I was fighting anybody with this book. I was just playing in an an imaginary playground. There was no argument. I was just enjoying the story. So that maybe we needed to get to this point 
where that was allowed. But it does seem to be that we're finally here. Thank you for listening to Jepper Bites. This podcast is produced by Launchora, a storytelling and creative learning platform, in association with Teamwork Arts, the producers of the Jepper Literature Festival. If you haven't already, do subscribe to our show wherever you're listening to this podcast. Ah.